Karma. Hello, hello, and thanks for joining me in a very special podcast. My name is Jamie Ryan, life coach, after life coach, and grief coach extraordinaire. I'm the creator of Grief GPS, your roadmap to navigating grief, and EQ on Blast. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about something very near and dear to my heart, and it's the story of my own grief. I'm not going to lie, it's going to leave me super exposed. I'm going to feel pretty vulnerable, and I'm probably going to be a bit uncomfortable, but I'm going to leave it all out on the table for you to dissect, and I hope you can derive some sort of inspiration from my story. If you're ready to celebrate the life of someone you've lost, get ready, party grievers, because we're about to get the party started. If you're ready to turn your grief into purpose, to thrive in the face of adversity, to keep it moving forward and face whatever curveball is thrown your way, then this episode is for you. Stay tuned. In today's podcast, I'm going to talk to you about something called cumulative grief and what that means. I'm going to share with you one of the most personal stories that I have that I have had to own. I'm going to talk to you about the sure footing when you know you're on the right path. This episode involves a parrot, a boot, a crash, a few more F-bobs than necessary, so please be warned, a lynx, and my hero. So here we go. The year was 2012, and I had just graduated with my degree in psychology. I had just paid off college when my entire world came completely crashing down, literally. My best friend in the entire world was my dad. I was definitely a daddy's girl. He was basically the only real family I had. My father was an emergency room physician and a pilot, and he was on his way flying to Mexico on a humanitarian mission to administer free health care with an organization called Los Medicos Voladores, the Flying Doctors. I remember my last conversation with my dad. I remember it vividly. <laughs> no, Jamie, you're not getting a lynx. And how on earth did you manage to get frostbite in summertime in Las Vegas? (laughs) Yeah, that was the last conversation I had with my dad. He gave me a spot GPS tracker for the flight, told me he loved me, called me an idiot, which was his way, which was basically synonymous with, I love you. And then he hung up. I remember scratching at the area underneath my orthotic boot where I had possibly, I may or may not have left the ice on longer than any medical professional would have advised, uh, but I had been diagnosed with a uh, partially torn Achilles tendon and I had been in this boot for several months and it just wasn't getting any better, so I was quite frustrated and I was an idiot. The next day, I awoke late and I had a missed call and a voicemail And I thought it was my dad. And let me just stop for a second. If you are ever in the position where you have to deliver the earth-shattering news to someone that their loved one has passed away, please, for the love of all that is good and holy in this world, please do not deliver it in a voicemail. It's the most cruel and inhumane way for somebody to receive that type of information. 
And that's exactly how I received that type of information. So I pressed play on the voicemail thinking it was my dad. And the voice that I heard was not my dad. It was a nurse that I knew who had been my father's friend. And the voice, it was so cold and it was so calloused. And for the sake of this podcast, I've decided to change the name of this character to protect his identity to Mr. Doucheman. And it went a little something like this. Jamie, this is Gus Doucheman. Your dad's been in an accident. And then there's this pause. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready. Where's my stuff? I have to get to dad. There, he's been in an accident. Okay. Like everything's going to be okay. His voice sounded like everything was okay. Just your dad has been in an accident. And then this pause ends. And he says really quickly, he says, there's no easy way to tell you he didn't survive. I'm sorry. And it was just like that. It was just so matter of fact and blunt. And in that moment, Jamie. Hey, Jamie. This is Gus Doucheman. Hey, your dad's been in an accident. This is Gus Doucheman. There's no easy way to Jamie. This is Gus there's no easy way to tell you dad's been in an accident there's no easy way to tell you he didn't survive i'm sorry what my dad's not dead what this is what are you talking about this is crazy i'm hobbling around the house where's my left shoe where's my right shoe where's my boot where did i put sudden death I hadn't given much thought to that phrase before, sudden death, but that's what it was. It was sudden. It was earth shattering. You know, I don't like to check my voicemail in the morning. And for many years after my dad died, I didn't. I refused to. You know, we had talked every day. Like I said, my dad was really all that I had. I was really estranged from my mother, who was his ex-wife, and I didn't want to give her that type of information the way that I had received it. So I mustered the strength to drive over to tell her in person, and on the way, I called Mr. Dushman to find out how he knew that my dad was in fact dead. And he said that he knew because he was there, that he was on the plane with my dad. So now I'm confused. Like, how are you here talking to me if you were on the plane? What do you mean you were on the plane? And he said, well, your dad noticed something wrong with the airplane upon takeoff and taxied back to the hangar. And then he asked myself and the EMT translator that was also on board to get off the aircraft so that he could take off alone to troubleshoot the problem. So then I was furious. I'm thinking an exorbitant amount of expletives and the various ways that I can call this guy a moron because my dad is not dead. God forbid I ever disrespect one of my father's colleagues or co-workers or anything like that. So I'm thinking all of these things in my mind. I'm trying to stay calm. I'm trying to ask him questions and I'm trying to comprehend the things that he's saying. 
But in my mind, I'm screaming, are you freaking kidding me? My dad died a hero. He saved your life and all I got was this lousy voicemail? I should have made a t-shirt. Wow, man. It was just so matter of fact and blunt and it changed my life forever. So I got to my mom's house. I'm standing there in tears, shaking, and I knock on the door and she answers and she takes one look at me and she says, is it daddy? And she knew, she knew right away. The tears are streaming down my face and I just step inside and she's running all around the house. I didn't get a hug, nothing. And within moments, she's on the phone with insurance agencies introducing herself as his wife, even though they'd been divorced for two years. But I don't realize this. I don't realize this at all because all I can think about is my dad. I get on the phone with the Truckee Fire Department and I knew these guys quite well. I had been an EMT and a ski patroller in Lake Tahoe. As a matter of fact, I'd been a ski patroller alongside of my father. And these guys were giving me a play-by-play what was happening at the crash site. So my mom comes into the room and she says in a whisper, I don't have power of attorney. And I'm like, okay, because I have absolutely no idea what that means. And I don't care. I don't know. I don't care. I just want to get to Truckee and I want to get there right now. I want to get to dad. So I ask her if I can borrow gas money because I had been out of work for several months in this stupid boot and I just needed to be there to get to dad. That was an emphatic no. No, no, no. She's still rummaging through paperwork on the kitchen table and I'm still on the phone with the fire department. They're giving me this play-by-play of what's happening and my dad was still inside the plane, inverted, crashed into a hangar, still had his seatbelt on, and they were waiting for the NTSB to arrive. So my mom goes to the bank and then she comes back and she comes waltzing in sashaying into the living room and she announces quite loudly as if she's talking to the queen of england and she's like i have power of attorney and i'm like cool because i still have no idea what that means since she wasn't going to loan me gas money so that i could get to dad she says i need you here to help me take care of affairs i said okay all right First, I had to call my half-brother and my half-sister, and they were really estranged from our dad. You know, I carried a lot of guilt because I had the dad that they never got a chance to experience. And it was really hard. You know, I had to give them that information, and it was tough. So I got off the phone with my half-siblings, and I'm like, okay, mom, like, what do we need to do? What's the first step? Let's talk about dad's funeral. I've never put together a funeral before. What, What do we do? And she says, a funeral? Well, we're not going to have a funeral. And I'm like, what? What do you mean we're not going to have a funeral? My mouth dropped. And she's like, well, who would come? Oh my gosh. In that moment, my mouth dropped. I saw red. And I was like, what do you mean who would come? This was your husband. Are you kidding me? He was on his way to help people in Mexico. He's a hero. What do you mean who would come? She says, oh, well, well, we'll figure that out. 
I said, you mean like how we figured it out from my 101-year-old grandmother who survived on 17% kidney function for a week before she died? This amazing woman, this Jewish woman who escaped Hungary in World War II on the Queen Mary, she came here as an immigrant and created this life and gave birth to my father, and we didn't have a funeral for her. And now you're saying we're not going to have one for my dad? So it was in that moment, he was like a split second. I went from being a child to the head honcho. Oh, we're having a funeral. The next day, my mother calls the cops on me because I had taken some documents off of the kitchen table and made copies at Kinko's, and she was unhappy about this. But my half-brother, who was a lawyer, said, Jamie, you have to make copies. You have to find out who has power of attorney because if you don't, we're not going to be able to do anything. And I'm like, guys, what is this power of attorney? I don't get it. He's like, well, you just have to make copies. So I took the paperwork and I made copies. And when I came back, the police were on their way. The next morning, I awoke to yet another voicemail. This time it was from my mom. And this is how that went. Jamie, you know what? You're going to fuck this up. You, Stacy, and David. Now you guys keep fucking around trying to build your ego, build your, your guilt. And if you know what? If you are so with Stacy and David, then you don't need to call me anymore. I don't need, you don't need to be in this. I am in charge of this. I have power of attorney. You do not go up to your father's. You do not make any statements. If you, if you don't straighten it out, you will not be at his funeral because I will have a police say that you, I have a police guard for all of you. And you will not get in his funeral. Now don't fuck with me because of David and Stacy. They didn't even talk to your father. How can you side with them so much? They hate your mother and they hated your father. And this, what is this all about, money? Is this all about money? Well, you can forget that. Keep fucking with me, Jamie. Don't fuck with me because I will drop you like a hot potato. I'm the one that you should be, you should be over here with. Not on the phone to Priscilla, not calling the radio station. Okay, I'm telling you, if this happens, I'm telling you, Jamie, if you side with them on this, you and I are finished. You will not get any money. You will not get anything. You will not get a dime. If you side with those motherfuckers, you can have them. My dad got his funeral. And you know who didn't come? My mom. So I think in order for you to get the full picture, you need a little bit of backstory, especially about my mom. Maybe my mom and dad's relationship and how I played a role in all of that, or maybe the role that I did not play. But I definitely think you need some backstory to kind of put everything into context. You know, death brings out money-hungry people. And my mom bled my dad dry long before he ever died. As a matter of fact, when I was cleaning out his office, an office that I wasn't even allowed into before he died, I came across their divorce papers and alimony payments. In the divorce papers, it stated clearly that my dad had to pay my mom $13,000 a month in order to keep his airplane. 
Now, this airplane could have been paid off in a few months because, I mean, let's face it, my dad was making pretty good money as an ER doctor. And from the amount of money that he was paying to my mom, it was pretty clear that that was feasible. But, you know, there was just something in it that my dad just had a lot of sentimental value to this plane. My dad liked the older planes. He loved his Piper Comanche. He wasn't too interested in getting a new one for whatever reason. He just liked this one. So basically, she had him by the balls. And he gave in. And he gave her whatever she wanted. But, um, you know, that was the plane that killed him. And the irony in that is palpable. But she didn't stop there. In my dad's checkbook ledger, he'd written weekly checks consistently. I'm not talking about like once in a while. I'm talking about consistently. I went through page after page after page, and it was basically this $5,000 on a Monday addressed to my mom and $15,000 on a Thursday and another $8,000 by Sunday. Then there were some weeks where it'd be seven grand on a Tuesday, 12 grand on Thursday, and on Saturday it would be an additional $6,000. You say what? What? Like what could she possibly need all this money for? And on top of all of this, he was continuing to pay for her car, her medical bills, her poodle's medical bills, her mortgage, and none of this stuff was part of the divorce. My mouth dropped, whoa. You know, he did it because he loved her and to love my mom came with a very hefty price tag. Mm-hmm. He gave her whatever she wanted. And what she wanted was Prada, Gucci, Louis, new Beamers every year. Preach. Go on and preach. And I don't think she really gave that much of a crap about my dad. I didn't care about money. I wanted my dad back. I wanted the person that I'd call and talk to every day that I'd tell all of my silliness to. And all of my exciting adventures, too. I just wanted my best friend back. You know, I paid my way through college. I didn't get any help. And when I lived with him, I came to help him out for a while with his animals because he was working so much. You know, he would ask me to borrow gas money. That ain't even right. It was mind-blowing to me. I would just shake my head. Like, what is going on? What's going on with the dynamic between my mom and dad and their relationship when they're getting this divorce? And why doesn't dad have money to put into his truck so that he can get to work? You know, I remember when I was a little girl, I used to have this safe, right? And each drawer was labeled. I had one drawer labeled spending. I had another drawer labeled savings. And then the last drawer the bigger drawer, was labeled, help dad. He worked so hard, (sighs) tirelessly. He took on three different jobs at three different hospitals to support her. He never got himself anything. It was just mind-blowing to me. And sometimes he'd fly his plane to work if he was working in another state or working in, say, like, 29 palms or something like that but a lot of times he was driving and towards the end he was basically working at this one hospital that was about two and a half hours away and he'd commute every night and every morning 
And sometimes the pass, Interstate 80, gets really hairy, especially in wintertime. It's really curvy, snow sometimes, and there's a lot of accidents. But he would always call me whenever he made it to work safely. He never forgot. He always called. And, you know, our day would basically go a little something like, like this. At about 5 p.m., we'd start dinner. And I'd get the steak out and I'd be like, mmm, this looks good. And he'd be like, no, no, no. That's the good steak. That steak right there, that steak is for the dogs. So you just, yeah, you just hands off that. (laughs) That steak is for Jesse and Samantha. It's not for you. But yeah, so we would make dinner at about five. He'd be out the door by seven. He'd work until six o'clock in the morning, drive two and a half hours through whatever type of weather it was to get back home. He'd get home, he'd feed and walk the animals, sleep for a few hours, and get up and do it all again. Every day. He did not take a break. He did not take a vacation. It must have been about a year before he died. I remember calling him and being like, Dad, 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 Dad. He's like, yes, Jamie. That was his voice. Okay, Dad, next January, do not plan anything. You're taking three weeks off from work. And he's like, yeah, okay, yeah, right. I'm like, no, no. I'm booking you a plane ticket to Hungary. This was his ultimate dream. I was like, Dad, Dad, I'm checking out all these cool hotels. They look like castles. You're going to love it. Well, he didn't make it, and he didn't get to go. My father didn't have a will. It was almost like he didn't think he was going to die, like he thought he was invincible. He hadn't appointed any sort of executor of his estate, So I became the successor. A little side note, though. He did have a life insurance policy. (laughs) Karma. I find it funny. He had this life insurance policy that named my mother as the sole beneficiary. But there was this clause in there. There was this clause in there that basically stated that the sole beneficiary would receive the entire payout unless... He died in a plane crash. Karma, 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 chameleon. I had to find homes for his seven animals, which included a parrot. He was a year older than myself, which was really weird and bizarre because he sounded just like me when I was a little girl. When I would talk or when I would cry, he'd be like, mom, mom, or where? <laughs> oh, man. You know, that parrot was kind of like a brother to me because I didn't live with my half-brother and I didn't live with my half-sister, so essentially I was an only child. But he was kind of like an evil brother. He was a very mean bird. But, yeah, I had to find homes for his seven animals and I had to Nancy Drew up and I had to go find his truck that was parked at this tiny little airport in Montague, California. You know, when I did finally locate my dad's truck, wow, man, that was one of the spookiest, most eerie, most empty experiences of my life. You know, I, I drove around. I thought that maybe his truck had been at this other little airport. I'd gone there and I didn't see his truck and the locals told me that there was another airport just a few miles out of town and they gave me directions on how to get there. I mean, this airport was in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So I started to turn down this dirt road 
that seemed to go on forever. It's like a bad dream. And at the very, very end, I could see this one lonely truck. This one truck that was covered in dust. And I got there and I was like, oh my God, I'm here. This is it. He's not coming back. He's not coming back to drive this thing away. Man, it was so bizarre. You know, I remember opening the door. And at the time, I had a boyfriend who was there with me. And my dad, when he wasn't flying to work, he was driving. And since I wasn't around to help take care of the animals, he had basically taken his animals to work with him on the road. When Priscilla, the pet sitter, wasn't available or whatever, he would take the animals. And, you know, his truck inside was just covered in dog hair. It had like an inch thick layer of dog fur just coated on the inside of this truck. And I got in and Vinny, my boyfriend at the time, he got in and I'm like, Vinny, do you smell that? And he's like, what? What? It, it, it smells like dog. And I'm like, I didn't smell dog. I smelled, I smelled death. It was unfamiliar to me and it didn't smell like my dad. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to drive that truck away from the airport, knowing that he was not coming back, that I had the steering wheel now or in aviation, I had controls. And I asked myself that question for the first time. A question that I was going to ask myself over and over and over again. Now what? Now what do I do? And you know, I remember turning the ignition on and there's something about the idea of what was the last song that he had listened to. So I turned on the truck and the CD player came on blasting. And the song that was playing, the very last song that he heard, It was House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. You know, that song, it resonates a lot with me, with kind of who my dad was, even to this very day. So I actually took all the CDs out and arranged them in a CD case in the order in which they had been in his CD player because I ended up having to get rid of my father's truck. And, you know, I just wanted to remember what order he was listening to music. I think that's something that a lot of people would probably be thinking about. You know, what was the last song he heard and it was that song every time I hear House of the Rising Sun you know it's haunting but I mean over the years it's definitely gotten easier for sure but that song I have a direct lifeline to it and it's really powerful to me so yeah so I started a give forward fundraiser ouch this was before GoFundMe was a really big thing and that hurt. You no, know, I was I raised a little bit of money here and there. Was it my father? And I I appreciated the little help and support that I got. I had to take to the news. I tried to do what I could do, no matter how how hard it was to take care of my father's affairs. And you know, there were a lot of naysayers out there that couldn't fathom the idea that a doctor's daughter couldn't afford the expenses. Well, I couldn't. I was in a boot. I was in a boot for several months and out of work and I was flat broke. 
my dad had been a medical legal expert witness. And, you know, inside of his house, he had hundreds of cases in boxes that I had absolutely no idea what to do with. I mean, these were some really big shoes to fill. And, you know, my boot just clearly was not going to fit into them. Before this, I wasn't even allowed into his office. And now all of a sudden, I'm taking care of everything, all of his affairs. And, you know, I... I really felt, because I was in such denial, I felt that he was coming back and that I was just kind of taking care of things while he was away at work like I used to always do. I went into autopilot for about two years. You know, I knew that I needed to give myself time to grieve, but for me, it just wasn't like that. You know, when someone dies in a plane crash, say versus a car crash, it's a little bit different. I mean... Sudden death is always hard, and my heart goes out to anyone who's had someone who's died in a car crash. I mean, when someone dies in a plane crash, you have to deal with this thing called the NTSB. And the thing about the NTSB is that they love to call and disrupt your life without any sort of answers. Every couple of weeks turned to every couple months, they would call and they'd have absolutely no answers for me about what caused the crash. And I'm like, I just want to know why this happened. How did this happen? What happened to my dad? You know, he'd been flying since he was 17 years old and he was 66 when he died. This wasn't some rookie pilot. I wanted answers. And the truth is, I was never going to know what happened. And that ate me up. It's impossible, at least it was for me, to start your grieving process when you're doing everything under the sun by yourself and you're constantly being reminded by the NTSB that, hey, it's not over. Hey, we don't have any answers for you, but we just want to call and let you know that we have no answers for you. That's great. Thank you. Now please stop calling me until you do. I really didn't get a break from my father's death it was constant but you know I figured it out I had to navigate after all I was my father's daughter and my father was a badass you know I kept to the dream my dad and I had of moving to Mount Hood Oregon to ski year-round I was really big on keeping promises and that was something that really helped me to move forward and it was something that I just felt that I owed to my dad. So a little bit more backstory. My dad and I, we love to ski. We just love to ski together. And North Star at Tahoe was my dad's favorite ski resort of all time. Hands down, this place was his jam. And we used to ski patrol together. So he would work in the medical clinic at the base of the mountain. And I'd drop patients off to him. And i just always got a kick out of this. I thought it was like the coolest thing ever to be working with my dad. He did too, but he'd never admit it. You know, he had a very dry, cynical sense of humor. So I'd transport patients down. I'd hand them off to my dad and I'd be like, hey dad, look what I got for you. And <laughs> I'd, <laughs> I'd begin proudly rattling off the patient's mechanism of injury, baseline vitals, my initial assessment of the patient, yada, yada, yada. And my dad would just look at me <laughs> And say, uh-huh, that's nice, Jamie. <laughs> and grumble under his breath that I'm an idiot, to which I'd respond, I love you too, Dad. And then I'd be out the door with the toboggan, 
huffing and puffing to get back up to the top of the hill to patrol standby. The weirdest thing was that I saw the newspaper article and in the background of the crash was North Star. I literally could not believe my eyes. Behind the hangar he crashed into was North Star. And it was really weird because he had moved away from Tahoe a year before the crash and we had lived all over the place. I'd lived in like seven states before I was 18 and Tahoe had become home. When I was a little girl, we'd go up on all these ski trips to Tahoe. And I, <laughs> and my dad taught me a bunch of completely inappropriate fraternity songs on all of these trips. I think he secretly thought that I was his son, but whatever. We would sing these, and I had no idea what I was singing about. I was just singing with Dad. I mean, that's what you do on a road trip. You sing along, you know? <laughs> but then, you know, we'd also sing songs like... <clears throat> Are you ready for this? I, I don't know if you guys know this one. It's a good one. Okay. Great big globs of greasy, grimy gopher guts, marinated monkey meat, little birdies, dirty feet, all these delicacies at my feet, and I forgot my spoon. Yeah, that was a good one. That was a personal favorite of mine. And, you know, he'd teach me all the bad words in Hungarian on all these road trips. You know, never never the normal ones that I could, you know, actually put to use. It was just the bad words in Hungarian that he would teach me. He had this badass black CJ5 Jeep, and I would just bundle up in my sleeping bag on all of these road trips. And my dad would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up and where I wanted to live. And it was very apparent at a very young age that my dad was always going to be my best friend. And so he'd ask me and I'd be like, I want a farm. <laughs> and I mean, to me, it was like, I, and I wasn't thinking like cattle or corn or anything like that. I was thinking animal farm because at the time I was like seven and I was like, I want, I want a farm that has like 17 dogs and a whole bunch of cats, even though I'm not a cat person. And, you know, maybe let's have some birds. I don't know. Hey, Dad, let's have some lizards and tarantulas and snakes on the farm. And my dad's like, yeah, totally. We're going to have that one day. Where are you going to have this farm at? And I'm like, I'm going to live in Lake Tahoe. <laughs> because to me, this place was where I had developed all of these amazing memories with my dad and I had formed this attachment to it and you know it was his dream to always live in Lake Tahoe and then he passed it down to me and I'm like totally that's so what I'm gonna do granted it's like Lake Tahoe off the freeway I don't know if you've ever seen Truckee or not but you know it's not like hey check out the lake like you can't see the lake from Truckee but you know when he died when he died there was something super comforting about the fact that he took his final breath in the town that we called home. And I guess that's the silver lining, right? That he died in a place that we called home and he died doing something that he loved. And my heart goes out to everyone who's lost someone directly or indirectly to this pandemic. I want to thank all the amazing frontline workers. You guys are legit warriors. These people have committed their entire lives to making sure people are healthy and well. And I'm kind of glad that my dad's not here to see this because 
You know, I know he'd be right there in the trenches, working side by side, fighting for people's lives. And my heart breaks for everyone who's lost someone because of COVID-19. I myself have lost two dear friends this year, and it seems impossible to stay positive. But seriously, what other option do we have? So yeah, keeping promises. Since my dad's been gone, I've taken his ashes on the Pacific Crest Trail, the PCT, which was something that we always talked about doing when he was alive. He's ridden in my backpack on plenty of powder days on many a lonely chairlift. You know, I promised my dad that I would always be brave. So when I developed a fear of small airports and of flying, not only did I force myself to face my fears and fly again, I now have 26 hours logged learning to fly a helicopter, and my dad's been able to be airborne again. This time in the passenger seat, you know, he's not so happy about that, but you know, he doesn't get a choice. My dad was a big skydiver with over 300 jumps. His nickname was Jumpfly. Papa Jumpfly. Papa Jumpfly has one final jump left. And that's when his ashes will be spread. After seven years, I made sure that Los Medicos Voladores made good on a promise that they had failed to do to erect a plaque in Mexico for my father. You know, I learned how to move forward without moving on or letting go. I think those things are super important. What I did let go of was the weight of grief. It wasn't the memory of my father I let go of. It was the weight of grief. I celebrate him. I did then, I do now, and I will continue to. And I'm here to tell anyone who's listening to this that you can too. If you've lost someone who's passed away, and you've been told you can't bury your loved one or you can't be with them when they take their final breath, you have a right and you deserve to be able to do that. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your loved one to celebrate them. And no matter what obstacles are thrown your way, this is your duty to yourself. And you know, this is something that I really just want to share with people because there's a difference between passion and purpose and without the deaths that I experienced in a short amount of time I don't think I ever would have been passionate about death but I found my purpose in my own grieving I was so overwhelmed with the wreckage I mean that's a metaphor within itself right the wreckage but I mean, the physical wreckage of my father's crash. Let me tell you, it was very traumatizing when they had me come back to claim all of my father's belongings. They had me show up at the sheriff's department, and it was behind this huge, huge fence out back behind their building. And at the time, my, I asked if my boyfriend could come back there with me into the area that they called evidence. And they had laid out everything from the crash outside behind this gate. And I really wished that they would have rethought that idea so that I would have had somebody to hold my hand for what I was about to see. Because what I was about to see was about to royally screw me up for the next couple years. And basically what I ended up seeing was 
everything that had been inside the plane when it crashed. A lot of it was my dad's. Some of it was the nurse's. Some of it was the EMT translator's. But a lot of the things that I saw, I knew. And I recognized I had a lot of sentimental attachment to. And it was all covered in blood. It was all covered in avgas. It was all bent and broken. And you know, they they asked if I wanted anything and I just stood there stunned. So I ended up taking the things that meant the most to me from the wreckage. And you know, I walked away. And I think there's something in that. You know, you take what means the most from the wreckage and you move you move forward. But it was a traumatic experience compounded by more trauma. It was very difficult when it comes to cumulative grief. Two months after the passing of my father, my half-brother and my half-sister lost their mom to cancer. And the little bit of support that I had through them shifted. And now I had to support them as they had lost both parents in two months. Four months after my dad's passing, my dad's dog died. And I know some of you might be thinking like, oh, it's only a dog. But to me, that was huge. Six months after my father's passing, my cousin, who is the closest thing I had to a sister, more so than my half-sister, she passed away. And her death was also a tragic way to die as well. But the sure footing when you know you're on the right path is really important. You know, after a month that I'd arrived in Oregon, I took the boot off. I started physical therapy. I realized I had been misdiagnosed and it was time for me to start walking again without being encumbered by this thing on my ankle. You know, and every month or so, something would arrive in the mail. I would check the mailbox and I would see another wallet. And I'm like, gosh, Dad, how many wallets did you have in the plane? And it was from the sheriff's department like, hey, we've got more evidence for you that we're sending. And I'm like, what? Another wallet? But it was inside the wallet that there would be another credit card or another account to close that would have you know, a thousand dollars in it or something like that. And it was enough for me to survive for the next month. And it was my dad. It was my dad definitely looking out for me. You know, that's, that's really what I believed. It's what I believed at the time. And I still believe it. You know, as 2020 comes to an end and as we approach 2021, what we're facing is something so intrinsically human. And we're facing our own mortality in the most unprecedented and inhumane ways imaginable. 
And it seems so crazy to me that that person that you held so dear for so long would pass away and you wouldn't even get a chance to give them a hug, to say goodbye, or to gather together to pay respects at a funeral. And I know what that feels like. This is a very real time in which we live. And it's like, what is there to celebrate, you know? And a lot of people might be asking that. Even before the onset of the pandemic, those left to grieve have been told from family, friends, strangers, to just get over it. It's time to let go. It's time to move on. Yeah, like, you gotta let that shit go. That's the worst thing anybody can hear when you're grieving. If you're anything like me, then you get it. At a time when so many people are losing so much, it's really easy to get lost among a sea of voices saying, me too. It's easy to think that your grief doesn't matter and that the person you lost is just another number on a statistics board. So that leads me to the entire purpose of this podcast. Grief is real, and there's no right or wrong way to deal with it. As a grief coach, I'm here to help people figure out that profound question of what now? What's next? To help people at their own pace to take the steering wheel, or as we say in aviation, to take controls. To find creative and productive ways and places to unburden their sadness and their loss. You know, when I was a kid, my dad used to talk a lot about using my inner compass. You know, we'd go camping a lot, and I thought it was just his dorky way of saying, you've got this, kid. But as I grew older, I realized my dad will always be my North Star. And that I really do have this inner compass, and everyone has it inside of them. It just wants to guide us in the right direction. And we all have this unique radar. Granted, my fiancé would argue with me that I have a great sense of direction, but it's so true. I really have come so far, and you can too, just by listening to your inner compass and allowing it to guide you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, listening to my story. I hope you got a chance to dissect it. I really do. I hope you just tore into it, dissected it, because I left it all out on the table for you guys. And it is with tremendous gratitude that I'm even able to say that. And my hope for you is that you can take a moment in your own unique grieving process to embrace gratitude, celebrate those who you've lost, and think about all the ways that they continue to enrich your lives even right now. This affirmation of gratitude, eat it up. Even if you don't think that there's much to be thankful for right now. You know, there are things that are within our control and there are things that are simply out of our control. And it is so easy to get swept up in these limiting beliefs that life is happening to us. But as you embark on this journey of healing, of moving forward with the memory, and the gratitude of that person who's no longer here, I'll tell you again like we say in aviation. You have controls. You have the steering wheel. Just ask yourself which direction you want to go. What's still here? You're still here. I'm still here. 
We are still here and the indelible mark they left will not be erased by someone telling you that you don't get to say goodbye. You don't need permission to say what you've been aching to say. Say, I'm going to celebrate those that I've lost. I have controls. I'm taking the boot off and I'm going to walk again. And I'm going to trust in myself because just like that misdiagnosis, I knew my strength better than anyone. And you know yourself better than anyone. And that's the secret. Just find your North Star, use your inner compass, and be good to yourselves. I love you so much. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.